welcome to the Dellingpod with me, James Dellingpod. And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but I'm really looking forward to this podcast with my fellow James, James Perloff. Welcome to the Delling Pod, James. Um, um, this, there's so much I want to talk to you about. Okay. Uh, well, uh, thank you for having me on. I'm delighted to um, uh, have a chance to be on a, uh, another UK broadcast. I've been on Richie Allen, maybe a couple of others, but uh, um, mostly in the US. Well, yeah. I, I suspect, having looked into um, some of your writing, that you've been on a similar James journey to me, but your journey has, has um, taken place earlier than mine because you've been you've been writing about what are loosely con- called dismissed as conspiracy theories for since when? 1985 is when I wrote my first article in the New American Magazine. 1978 was when I woke up, or as we say, got red pilled from reading Gary Allen's book, None Dare Call It Conspiracy. And he laid out, um, you know, uh, how the Federal Reserve was founded, how we got into World War I through the Lusitania. Um, he talked about the Council on Foreign Relations, um, the different wars, the drive for world government. Um, he didn't cover everything, but he covered enough that uh, uh, it was a big wake up call for me. I saw that unlike what my public school books were teaching, History was not unfolding by chance. It wasn't just like a war just happened. But uh, the wars were following an agenda with an ultimate goal of world government, which we're seeing fulfilled uh, now uh, with consolidation of power under the World Economic Forum and uh, consolidation of policies, media, um, the reaction to whether it's Ukraine, climate change or COVID, they're all marching to the same beat and all of it is leading to globalization. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you on that. So, how old were you when you when you got red pilled by that book? Twenty seven. Okay, so so you had twenty seven years leading up to that point as what we might call a normie. Uh, did you have a Did you have a normal job up to that point? A normal what after that point? A normal job, a normal career. What were you doing when you got? Oh, I was a registered nurse, and. Uh... Um, but my ambition was to be a writer. I'd been writing since my teens. Um, and uh, uh, that was where my, my greater gifts uh, lay. But I, I, uh, it's hard to make a career out of being a writer. Nursing, I was a nurse for 45 years in Massachusetts. She gave a little insights to write my book on COVID, which was Amazon's number one bestseller for two months um, in the category of respiratory diseases before they Center. It alternated with Gigi Mikovic's book uh, as, as the number one uh, bestseller. Um, but yeah, I worked as a registered nurse for 45 years, but I uh, started in 1975. But I, um, I retired uh, 2019, just before COVID struck. And uh, But I'm still writing, of course. And I started writing uh, as a professional journalist with the New American magazine in 1985. This is a, a magazine of the John Birch Society which uh, was a chief promoter, I think, of uh, non-dercala conspiracy. Um, that, that's where uh, uh, I, I initially, uh, initially uh, uh, found um, a base to, to write from, but now I blog independently. That's interesting. So when you went into nursing, presumably you believed at the time in the, the medical establishment paradigm that, that that this, this medicine was modern and, and good for patients and so on. 
Right. Well, uh, in, in those days, it was more so. And um, I had uh, no suspicions about the, you know, the political or medical establishment when I graduated from uh, nursing school in 1975, Boston University School of Nursing. Um, it wasn't until 1978 um, that I started to wake up to political realities, but the medical realities didn't start coming to light for me until 1991 when um, my hospital, which is one of the largest ones in greater Boston, um, uh, insisted we all take a hepatitis B vaccine. Actually, the chances of getting hepatitis B as a medical worker were uh, astronomically low and because um, uh, you only could get it from an exchange of bodily fluids through sex with an infected person or with a dirty needle. But we no longer were recapping our needles. We just dropped them in a, a drop box. Um, there was almost no chance of getting hepatitis B. And uh, they insisted housekeepers get it as well, this hepatitis B vaccine. And I, 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 they had a special meeting in the auditorium, hospital's auditorium about this. And I said, well, why do housekeepers need the hepatitis B vaccine? They don't touch needles and they don't touch patients. I said, they said well, what's some, what if some lazy nurse leaves an uncapped needle on the bed and the housekeeper's making the bed and you get stuck? And I thought, that's ridiculous. Um, that would be an extremely unlikely event. But even if it did happen, what are the odds of that needle having hepatitis B virus on it? You know, it was it had, it had to be billions to one. And one of our young housekeepers collapsed after getting the hepatitis B vaccine. We had to labor out in a bed in a vacant patient room. And I went to my superiors and I said, well, I'm not taking this vaccine. Three shots they want to take. I said, the chances of getting hepatitis B are so minimal. I just don't think I, I put my trust in these shots. And uh, they said, well, you have to sign a waiver. So I signed the waiver. But I this, this before the Internet. But a mental, mental note to myself, I need to look more into vaccines at some point. I said, something's going on with vaccines. This isn't right. We're supposed to do things that are logical in medicine. And it was about uh, 10 years later with the, you know, the advent of the internet and discovery that I'd had some reactions to vaccines as a child that I started to investigate vaccines, saw the link between autism. And now, of course, with, with the uh, mRNA vaccines, it's on a whole new plateau with sudden death of myocarditis and the young and so forth. So yeah, I, now I'm awake, but no, initially I was not. Sorry, I kind of gave kind of. No, no, that was a good, that was the, um, an inter- it was the kind of answer I wanted. So, um, uh, as you know, because you've presumably been trying to red pill people like I have over the years, it's not simply enough to give them the facts. There's got to be a kind of willingness in the mind mm-hmm. to absorb right. this information and take it seriously. I'll give you an example of this. I was at a party the other day, and I got talking to two. Um, pillars of the local establishment about Ukraine. Hmm. And I I started trying to explain to them perfectly reasonably, I thought, that actually the Russians had a very reasonable casus belli, that that this war had been provoked and that, you know, the the stuff that you and I would, would, and probably most viewers and listeners would take for granted as, as being factually accurate. And these people, these two people, just laughed in my face. I mean, they, I've never had anyone laugh in my face before. They laughed at me like I was a fool, like I was so gullible. And one of these chaps cited the book that you that that, that turned you into, took you down the rabbit hole. Non dare, none dare call it conspiracy. And he said, "Yes, I I read it a few years ago in a, a hotel room when I was bored, and I just thought it was just." ridiculous perfectly ridiculous so i was wondering what it was when you read that book that made you receptive to the ideas in it um well it made sense um and it made sense of history 
and it, it uh, you saw the patterns of history fit this model uh, perfectly. And um, uh, so uh, uh, it, it somehow it registered for me, it didn't register for this individual you were talking to. Um, I don't know what his mindset was. Well, he's ex me. You might say he was, he was less open-minded. Evidently he was less open-minded towards uh, the facts. He was, he was a a guards officer, which gives you an idea. I mean, this guy had been brainwashed at at Sandhurst and elsewhere or Catterick or wherever to, to, to think Mm -hmm. like a, 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 a tool of the, of the establishment. So, I mean, it's understandable in his case, but I was wondering, Chris, a lot of people who are where we are, we all ask ourselves, what is it about us that makes us immune to the nonsense all around us? Why, why are so many other people brainwashed? And what, what makes us different? Have you ever thought about that about yourself? Um, well, I guess for one thing, we're all individuals and different capacities and, and different mindsets and different upbringings. Um, so it, it's uh, hard to pinpoint. Um, I guess I'd have to say, thank God that... Um, I, I was able to see the truth. I, I want to mention something, by the way. Um, I uh, In Finding None Dare Call a Conspiracy, the reason I read the book was I saw a girl reading the book. And without speaking to the girl, I don't think I was in a position to speak to her at the time. I just looked at the cover and something told me, you have to get a hold of that book. Um, and then I walked into a street, uh, 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 I'm sorry, a, a bookstore on Massachusetts Avenue in Boston. And right there on the shelf was none dare call a conspiracy. And it was right there. And so I bought a copy and uh, opened it up and it opened my eyes. Um, but uh, obviously there are other people who don't. Uh, you know, one of the things that Gary Allen did that was very effective, he didn't just give you a couple of talking points. He actually summarized quite a bit of history and he documented it as well. And, uh, you know, I, my own experience is that you can't, convince somebody with a brief water cooler conversation at work, you uh, pretty much have to give them uh, um, um, uh, a trove of facts. And so, for example, my book, uh, Truth is a Lonely Warrior, which came out uh, 10 years ago and supplemented by my um, uh, another volume, which is kind of a companion book, 13 Pieces of the of the Jigsaw. Um, I cover uh, in great detail, you know, the Federal Reserve, the Council of Foreign Relations, uh, the, the false flags, Lusitania, the sinking of the Maine, which brought us into the Spanish-American War and what was going on in that war. And you see the same people behind it. You know, Ferdinand Lundberg um, wrote a book in uh, 1937. I have it here somewhere, on my copy. But uh, he, he was an eminent financial journalist. Um, he wrote his book uh, 40 years before uh, Gary Allen wrote his, and he he documented from the financial records that an oligarchy, not the voters, were controlling America. And um, he did this for the financial records. He showed that America's top 60 families had a controlling interest or complete ownership of the major industries, that they owned the media, and he went from coast to coast, and he went by newspaper and news to newspaper and, and, and newspaper chain to newspaper chain. He, he demonstrated that they, in fact, owned the media, uh, most of it, not all of it, but most of it, so that they can control the the narrative, and that they're also picking presidential candidates before the nomination uh, conventions took place. Um, and uh, again, it was it was all documented. Nobody's ever refuted the book. It's hard to find the book. You know, I have an old library copy uh, in, in my collection, 
but uh, an amazing book. Uh, it shows, uh, you know, what really happened to the panic of 1907 and what was really happening in the Spanish-America War. And uh, from a 1937 viewpoint, it was pretty amazing. Uh, it was comparable to Gary Allen's book uh, uh, in its day. Um, but anyway, the, the uh, for me, uh, uh, showing people all the facts, you know, the EMFs, the chemtrails, the um, uh, the vaccines, the depopulation quotes you hear from Bill Gates and Ted Turner and Robert McNamara, the former um, head of the World Bank, Bertrand Russell and others talking about having the world reduce world population by 90 percent, 95 percent. And then you see the vaccines and all the deaths that are go unreported in the mainstream media. You know, after a while, when you get into this stuff and you see in the central banking, the the the, uh, CBDCs that they're planning and the Great Reset and uh, how they dominate their their own members dominate the, the the cabinets, which is very documentable. In fact, my first book, which came out in 1988, The uh, Shadows of Power. Um, oh, here it is. <laughs> Still selling on Amazon, although it's way overpriced. You pay about 40 bucks for a new copy on Amazon nowadays. But um, I documented in that book um, that uh, the establishment, the oligarchs, were putting their own people into the presidential cabinets of American presidents, whether they were Republican or Democrat. And I went administration by administration or Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Ford, Carter, and Reagan, who was the, the last president uh, at the time this book was uh, was, uh, was presented. I, I, I showed how many of them came from the Council on Foreign Relations and how many came from the Trilateral Commission, which is sort of a, a sister organization. And it couldn't be a coincidence. President John F. Kennedy, who's one of our better presidents, once said, well, how come I always see the same list of names every time I need to make an appointment? Well, they're coming, they're coming to the Council on Foreign Relations. It's very easily documentable that they've dominated the um, the uh, uh, cabinet. In fact, on, on my book, Truth of Lonely Warrior, in the back, I wrote, um, since its 1921 founding, what small organization has produced 21 secretaries of defense, 19 treasury secretaries, 18 secretaries of state, and 16 CIA directors, of course, the numbers have gone up a little since then, and about half of Biden's cabinet is from the Council on Foreign Relations. But it's very obvious that one reason why our policies don't change much from administration to administration, even though they change from Republican to Democrat and back again, um, is that they're coming from the same organization, which has the same outlook. Uh, so our trade policies don't change, our war policies don't change, our Federal Reserve policies don't change. It's the same people running the show. Yes. And I imagine you, you have the same pretty much the same dilemma in England. Well, we do. I, I I think that probably there has not been a time in the life of anyone living or indeed probably a, a, a time, um, we're probably looking back hundreds of years even, aren't we? Where, where there's a time where mm-hmm. politicians were not merely the puppets of these oligarch, of this oligarchy. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, an interesting thing. Um, I grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts, which um, is the town where the American Revolution against Britain began. And, uh, you know, one day my um, uh, after being a writer for some years, my, my I'd never written on the revolution, but my son asked me if we'd go on a tour of Lexington and Concord where the war began. And as I started hearing the tour guides say things that didn't make a lot of sense, said, you know, I need to investigate this a little bit more. You know, there's always this mystery about who fired the shot around the world. And as I investigated, I realized that um, the events that, that took place in my hometown of Lexington were carefully planned 
by Freemasons. You know, uh, Paul Revere, I'm sure you've heard of him. Um, uh, his famous midnight ride warning that the British were coming or the Redcoats were coming. Um, he was sent on his ride by Charles, Dr. Charles Warren. Uh, and he rode out to my town of Lexington to a house about 200 yards behind the green where the battle would take place the next morning. And uh, he met there with John Hancock and Sam Adams. Well, it turns out that uh, another writer was sent to that house by Warren, just in case Revere didn't make his name as Charles Dawes. Well, it turns out that uh, Revere and Hancock and Dawes um, and Warren were all members of the same Freemasonic Lodge, uh, St. Andrew's Lodge in Boston, which met at the Green Dragon Tavern. You never hear about that in history books. There was a definite plot to um, trap the British. Um, American patriots won't like my saying this, and I have, have to tip my hat to American patriots. Uh, our, 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 you know, our, uh, our Trumpsters and our constitutionalists are the best defenders of freedom in America right now, but there are some misconceptions about the founding of America. It was um, uh, intended to use the uh, Lexington militia as cannon fodder, and the British were tricked into firing uh, by uh, Freemasons who were concealed in the bushes and behind a wall. They fired, but they didn't hit any British soldiers. Uh, all the shots missed, but the British didn't realize what was going on. They, uh, they just, without waiting for orders, they just spontaneously started firing. And uh, 17 members of the Lexington militia were killed or wounded. And the British only suffered one minor wound, a uh, private named Johnson. Who, he was, the wound was so minor, he was able to continue his march. Well, this is exactly what Sam Adams wanted. Uh, he attended the Continental Congress of 1774 eager for war with Britain. And he uh, uh, tried to push for that war, but the other delegates were not eager. And uh, and so Sam Adams said, well, supposing uh, a battle brings out, uh, breaks out between um, um, Americans and British in Massachusetts, would you come to our aid? And the other delegates that were suspicious from other states, and they said, well, only if the British fire first. So Sam Adams had to set up a situation where it would appear that the British fired first, Actually, the Americans fired first, but the um, they used the the Lexington militia's cannon fodder. It was a free of a Freemasonic event, and this is part of a long-term plan to destroy monarchies. You know, they they used the monarchies of Spain and France and England to settle the New World, and then the Freemasons and the anti-monarchists moved in as soon as the French and Indian War was over, in which the British and the Americans were allies. Britain instantly, 1763, became an a, uh, enemy. And Sam Adams began uh, saying that um, Britain's taxation policies were slavery, were well, very mild. The first British tax imposed on Americans was the uh, uh, molasses tax, or also called the Sugar Act of 1763. And the only reason that Britons put that minor tax on Americans was because the, uh, Britain's national debt had doubled by the end of the French and Indian War. And we Americans were the main beneficiaries and the British citizens felt that, you know, Americans as British citizens at that time should pay their fair share. Um, British taxation policy was very mild. And in fact, um, in 1775, when the war broke out, there was only one British tax on Americans. That was a, a tax of uh, three cents on a pound of tea. And uh, that was it. There was no other taxes. That was just a customs duty. Um, it was very mild. And uh, yet, but it resulted in the Boston Tea Party, where all the tea was thrown into the ocean by the Freemasons uh, dressed up as Indians. And uh, so actually, um, that was the first blow of the New World Order, the shot hurt for around the world. And it led to subsequently, of course, the French Revolution, which was a free, definitely, a, absolutely a Freemasonic event. 
and the other Freemasonic wars in uh, Italy, Portugal, um, casting off the monarchs who the Rothschilds knew they couldn't intermarry with those families. So they had to set up democracies and republics whose <clears throat> prime ministers would be uh, easily um, dictated by them because they control the media. They, know they control Reuters, which in turn owns Associated Press. And so the New World Order uh, gradually uh, evolved uh, from that point. Uh, the whole thing was anti-monarchical because they had to get rid of the monarchs, except those like in England where they, they compromised with with the, the Rothschilds and the New World Order. Uh, so they could set up their uh, system, which has now fallen into the hands of Charles Schwab and the, I'm sorry, not Charles Schwab, uh, Klaus Schwab and the, uh, the Econo World Economic Forum, where they're dominating the cabinets of, of uh, administrations worldwide, just as in my book, The Shadows of Power, um, uh, 36 years ago, um, I, I documented that uh, it was being done on an American level. Now it's, it's worldwide. Um, and uh, we're, we're very swiftly being carried forward by whatever agenda they want. And they can do it easily because not only did they control the politicians, but they have such control of the mainstream media. So whether it's COVID or climate change or Ukraine, that they all work in lockstep. And the public who, those, pub those people of the public who are not um, uh, red-pilled or not watched alternative media and all they do is turn on the TV set, they go along with the program. Yes. Um, I wanted to congratulate you, by the way, on, um, I think, I was just reading your, your latest book, Missing Saints, Missing Miracles. And what I really liked was the way that you summarized um, very succinctly um, and sort of unemotionally uh, who it is that, 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 what the situation is, that what, what the new world order is and who it is that one, runs the world. And I'll just read it out because you probably haven't got it to hand. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the concept, I'll put it concisely. In reality, America and many other countries are chiefly run by wealthy oligarchs who conceal themselves behind the facade of democracy. Voting gives the public the illusion that the people are in charge. Over the decades, through the power of wealth, the oligarchs have consolidated their domination of governments, industry, banks and media. It may be stated categorically, I like this, that these oligarchs have long been seeking to establish a world government and are no friends to no friends of Christianity. Now, what I like about about that that paragraph is that it puts it in the kind of language that even a normie could accept as not being too too outlandish or it, it, your language there doesn't frighten the horses and it does state the situation. But how far back do you think this this goes? Where where do, do I mean, we're talking Babylonian era? Are we talking pharaohs? What? Oh, I guess it's sort of uh, eternally. You know, I, I, I always like to say that, um, and I think I said it in, in this most recent book as well, that politics and geopolitics wars and so forth, basically spiritual warfare carried out on the human plane. We know in the in the Bible, which goes back to the time of Christ um, and before, um, that uh, uh, there is a, uh, a long-term battle between satanic forces and, and, and the forces of God. And I, I have to say, it's sort of, a, I guess you might even say it began in the Garden of Eden. Um, now, this particular um, phase is, that we're talking about with the oligarchs winning America, because America wasn't settled and... Um, began getting settled around um, the uh, 1600s, you know, during the Elizabethan era. Um, and uh, um, 
It was Francis Bacon who called America the New Atlantis. The uh, the uh, secret societies were very delighted when America was discovered because uh, they looked on America as, as uh, here's this uninhab- basically uninhabited continent except for the Native Americans. Um, and they thought this looked on this as the lost Atlantis that God had destroyed with the, f- the flood, uh, the, 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 the uh, great deluge described in the Bible. And so they wanted to make America the, sort of the uh, starting point to overthrow the uh, existing order, the Christian order, you know, the, uh, many of the, uh, uh, monarchs of Europe would style themselves the defenders of the faith. So the czars of Russia saw himself that way. And of course the British coins used to have, um, St. George slain. I, I suppose they still do. I don't know. Uh, St. George slain the dragon and, uh, fit deaf, uh, the, the defender of the faith. Um, they wanted to destroy that, that system, uh, using America as a starting point, but, I, I, I have to really say that um, the battle before, between the forces of good and evil certainly goes back to biblical times in the early Christian church when um, uh, the uh, Romans were had been overtaken by um, the concept of these pagan gods who were really demonic. Um, you have the tales of, uh, when I read the uh, Synexarium, which is the 4,000 pages of the, called the, the Lives of the Saints of the Orthodox Church, uh, the church that I joined in 2017, you would sometimes they would destroy a, say a statue of a, the, uh, 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 the Roman god Apollo and uh, a, a demon or a dragon would emerge from it. Um, uh, so these were demonic forces that, uh, that Christ, when Christ was born, uh, there were some very dark forces in the world. Um, and of course, um, Christianity is, uh, was long in a duel with um, uh, with Judaism and, and uh, the Hebrews, uh, uh, especially the, the, I'm referring to the Talmudic ones, and I'm half Jewish myself. I mean, but my father was, uh, uh, was, he was of Jewish lineage. He, had, he was a totally non-practicing Jew. I've never been in a synagogue in my life. I didn't even know he was Jewish until I was 21 years old. Um, he didn't like to talk about all his friends with Gentiles. You know, um, he just was completely Americanized. But there are groups such as Chabad, B'nai B'rith, and the Likud party, and um, uh, Israel, which are uh, centered on Jewish domination, they played certainly a great role uh, themselves since the time of Christ in trying to subvert Christianity. And uh, today, we, you know, you see that they, they advocate Jewish supremacy. But again, I want to really stress that this is not true of all Jews at all. Uh, I know quite a few Jews who are not the least interested in the Rothschilds or banking or Israel yes. or Zionism. And in fact, there are Jewish organizations like Maturi Karta, which... Um, uh, the big uh, group of Orthodox Jews who are openly opposed to Israel. They've taken out ads in the New York Times expressing their disgust with the state of Israel and their oppression of the Palestinians. So it's it's not worldwide. And it's not just the Jews. They, they have the Rockefellers and the Morgans working for them, you know. And um, uh, so, but it is the oligarchs yeah, are they, in any are, event. Are the Rockefellers and, and I, I can never work this one out, the Rockefellers and, and the Morgans and so on, are they Jewish? Are they not Jewish? Uh, some people said that the... Uh, Rockville has had some Jewish blood in them, but I don't put a lot of stock in um, the significance of that, even if it was true. But uh, it said that the Rothschilds, who are certainly Jewish and take great pride in being Jewish, um, provided seed money for John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Corporation. And that they also uh, convinced the Bank of England to bail out J.P. Morgan and Company um, when his firm was in trouble in the 19th century. A couple of J.P. Morgans, one died, I believe it was 1913, then his son took over, J.P. Morgan Jr. But uh, they were uh, dominant forces in establishing the Council on Foreign Relations, which I wrote my book about, uh, I mentioned the Shadows of Power. 
uh, if you look at uh, the Council of Foreign Relations, the original um, president was uh, J.P. Morgan's uh, personal attorney. Um, and uh, the original um, vice president was Paul Cravath, who was also a Morgan attorney. And the original chairman was Russell Leffenwell, who was a Morgan attorney. And then the Rockefellers started bringing their people into the council in 1927. And David Rockefeller was the uh, chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations in 1970-1987. And then the honorary chairman until he died at the age of 101. And if you look at the leadership of the council, it's all bankers. And it's like, you have to wonder, how come throughout all these decades, American foreign policy has been dictated by bankers from Goldman Sachs and places like that. These people don't have training in diplomacy. They, they, what they do is they take a few uh, study groups and attend some dinners at the Council of Foreign Relations, then they're qualified, then they go into the presidential cabinets. But they're not, they're not people with our best interests at heart here in America. No. They're, they're serving the interests of the oligarchs. No, I certainly agree with that. There's, 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 there's so many different um, directions we could go here. I, you mentioned David Rockefeller. Um, the, the Rockefeller dynasty, certainly the ones we, we, who, who figure prominently in, in history, seem to be of a psychopathic... Malthusian bent. I mean, David Rockefeller, his his grubby fingerprints are all over um, a lot of the kind of New World Order policy. I mean, I don't know much. But he seems a really nasty piece of work. I mean, like his was it his grandfather that, that founded Standard Oil? Yes. Yeah. John D. I mean, John D. He looks like a, he just he doesn't look human. I mean, in his older photographs, he looks like like he's a different, like he's a, a lizard creature, doesn't he? You must have seen those photographs. Oh, oh yes. Uh, those have been commented on, although I guess uh, none of us look too great when we're 101 or nine. He actually died at 99. David Rockefeller was 101. They obviously, I think it's probable that they had, uh, you know, access to um, methods of keeping themselves alive longer. Yes. Uh, what, sort not, of not the sort eternal of life that they would have. Human produced drugs, you're thinking. Um, uh, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, it's said that the Rockefeller Foundation funded uh, work at medical schools that was um, partly designed to help um, that family and those, those high-ranking members of that family to live longer. I, I mean, I, I'm, surely Mr. Burns from The Simpsons is based on is based on those Rockefellers. Oh, yeah, I've heard that many times. Yeah, I made a meme of uh, Jacob Rothschild watching The Simpsons. Um, so we can find out what he's supposed to do next because <laughs> they're so predictive. Thing is, I love Mr. Burns in The Symptoms. He's kind of my favorite character. He's a kind of sort of almost a lovable, lovable in, in his shameless, shameless evil. But when it's these guys actually doing this stuff to us, by the way, I, I mean, I, I don't know whether there is a kind of whether the this conspiracy is 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 Jewish driven, but I but I I do know that. The majority of the, you know, there are more Jewish victims of the conspiracy than there are actual Jews responsible for it. I, I, I think we're all it's kind of us, us for all of the us versus a tiny number of them, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that's true. Um, the, the high ranking Jews do call the you know the people like would be my father, for example, who grew up in a Jewish orphanage, by the way. Um, they would call them their lesser brethren, and uh, they are somewhat protective of them but um yeah they're certainly more loyal to um their uh, elite leadership yeah yeah um so uh 
you've you, you've also been on on a on a kind of journey of 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 faith. I think born of I mean partly of of despair, or rather, your your new book is born is born partly of despair, in that you've come to realize, if I can summarize, that the situation is now so dire, these people are so entrenched that really, at this point, only God has the power to save us. Is that is that fair enough? I think that's true, and. Uh... Uh, yeah, that's a one. There's a f- uh, last book, of Missing Saints, Missing Miracles, the first um, truly spiritual book that I'd written because uh, it, it's became obvious that because the oligarchs control the government, the media, the intelligence services, um, and most of the police, that um, we, we're not going to vote them out. You know, the last election in America was a complete fraud between the Dominion voting machines and electronic voting is very dangerous. The way they used to count votes in America was that they count the paper ballots and they'd have representatives of each party there, maybe a policeman and a representative of the League of Women Voters. So it might make a mistake in the count, but it'd be minor locally. But then when you put it into a, a, um, have it counted by computers, you know, it's very, very easy to put a a hidden code in that computer that'll transfer millions of votes from one person to another. The other thing was, uh, Dinesh D'Souza, a conservative spokesman here in America, put together a, a documentary called 2000 Mules and they, incredible documentation, they show that um, the uh, after midnight, the uh, ballot boxes were stuffed with these uh, so-called mail-in votes by people who would stop at Democratic Party uh, headquarters. And many of them are caught on camera. Uh, these, are, these are public cameras. And they've, they hired an investigation company. They were able to identify many of these people through their cell phones and watch them going from Dropbox to Dropbox. So like, for example, in the state of Georgia, he was de- uh, Trump was declared the winner by 57 to 43% that evening of the election. Yet overnight, about a quarter of a million Biden votes were stuffed into these boxes. And then um, Trump took it, I believe it was by, I'm, I'm sorry, Biden won the state, I believe it was by 7,000 votes. Uh, Arizona, same thing, uh, a quarter of a million uh, Biden votes stuffed in there. Now, John F. Kennedy, who is very p- popular, lost to his Republican rival when he ran. In the, uh, uh, he, he lost it by 10, 10 percentage points in Arizona. Are you trying to tell me that Joe Biden is more popular than John F. Kennedy? No way. Uh, how did he win in a state that always votes Republican? It was it was through cheating. So we're not going to vote them out. So you look at the situation, and I, I just don't think that uh, you know, even if people tried to organize a, a worldwide re- revolt, you know that the, the intel service would be reading the the, the emails and, and the, the intercepting the phone calls. They wouldn't very hard to do. So we're, what an uphill battle! So I really feel that we know that these people are guided by satanic influences, but God is superior to Satan. He does lay out in the Book of Revelation a period of dark time under the Antichrist, and it seems like we're headed into that with your "you can't buy or sell." Uh, digital IDs that are, you know, increasingly uh, coming into play, you know, digital tattoo that'll have your vaccine record on it and your financial record on it. And that's coming from the Rice School of Bioengineering. It's on their website. I quoted it in my book uh, on on, uh, COVID-19 and the agenda to come red-pilled. And in um, uh, Sweden, there's a company called uh, Disruptive Subdermals that's developed a microchip that was under your skin and it, uh, a smartphone can read a PDF of your vaccine record from that. 
And, you know, um, a, a lot of places in Europe were saying you couldn't go into a store to buy anything without being vaccinated. That's getting awfully close to the mark of the beast. You know, if you've got a microchip or a digital tattoo, we're really headed into the end time. So I, I did feel in writing this last book that it was um, we needed to appeal for divine intervention. You know, um, there was a case in the Bible where uh, the prophet Jonah went to the city of Nineveh where God had prophesied doom. And when the people listened to Jonah, they repented and God relented and he took away that prophecy of doom. I would love to see that happen. Uh, I, by the way, there, there is one scenario that some people believe could happen politically, which is that patriotic military members could step up and have a coup and throw out um, this, these bad governments. But um, I'm afraid they've been, um, through attrition, they've been getting rid of uh, good soldiers and replacing them with bad officers uh, around the top. So I don't particularly feel hopeful that that's going to happen. But uh, short, uh, other than that, I, I feel that we need divine intervention. So um, yeah, a call for us to, uh, to repentance and to, uh, to, to obey God that he might um, uh, either shorten the time uh, of our woes or maybe, uh, you know, uh, cause these rascals to fall into their own trap and, um, and ha have a such a worldwide awakening that uh, they do lose uh, their, their, uh, in this attempt to oppose the Great Reset on us. Yeah, it would be nice, certainly, if if he he decided to have mercy and cut mm -hmm. short the tribulation, um, because I mean, reading reading my book of Revelation, no. it ain't pretty. The stuff that awaits us, and I I kind of feel slightly cheated on this score because I'm I'm a Christian like you, and I try and do the right thing, and I try and obey God's word. And it's, it's a bit, I mean, I know he lays out the deal. I know that they lay out the deal. Um, Jesus, Jesus warns us of, 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 of what's coming. Uh, but it is, it is a bit tough, isn't it? Being sort of on God's side and nevertheless having to suffer because of all the stuff that the other people do, the bad people. Uh, that's absolutely true. And that's why one of my books is called truth is a lonely warrior. And I know, uh, you know, I, I hang out with, uh, we call truthers um, in my area around Boston. You know, we, we, we get together from time to time. And I know um, two people that got divorced, a man um, who divorced his wife. Uh, he put up a poster about 9-11. She'd rip it down. I mean, and, and uh, there was another woman. Uh, her, she was red-pilled. Her husband was totally blue-pilled. And it got so intense that they finally had to separate. So uh, as Jesus said, you know, uh, there would be... Um, family members turning against each other. Um, and, uh, but this really is, uh, it isn't just about politics and 9-11 and things like that. It, it's, it's all spiritual warfare uh, that's been taking place uh, with Satan really building this uh, kingdom. Um, you know, on the back of the US dollar bill, you'll see there's a pyramid, which is not an American symbol at all. It's a Freemasonic symbol. And um, at the yeah. top is this all seeing eye, uh, which appears to be, um, say, you know, Satan's eye. And the pyramid isn't finished. And I, apparently the um, symbolism is that when the pyramid reaches the eye, that's when they'll have their new world order. That's when the Antichrist will reign. But the Bible does give us some comfort in promising that the reign of the Antichrist will be three and a half years or 1,260 days. And it's interesting that Jesus, his ministry uh, lasted for about three and a half years. It's almost as if 
God is saying to Satan, okay, I'll let you, I'll give you the same amount of time that I gave my son to rule over the earth and do your worst. But when the three and a half years are up, you're toast. You're not going to get more than the time that Jesus had. It's interesting to set this date of 2030. Now, according to the Orthodox Church, and I can't say that they're absolutely right in this, the, 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 the Jesus was, was crucified in 33 AD. And it's said that the reason why Freemasonry has 33 degrees is because they're celebrating the death of Jesus, seeing this as a victory, which it, which it is, which it is yeah. not. But I, it's interesting they have this agenda 2030, and there's the World Economic Forum is saying uh, 20, it's 2030, you'll have no privacy, you'll own nothing. It's almost as if 2030 is a target date for the Antichrist to begin his rule. I may be totally wrong and I'm just speculating, but that would be 2,000 years after Jesus began his reign. And then he, 2033, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw the return of Christ for the second coming. That's, uh, I, again, I, but I shouldn't play with two numbers too much because Jesus did say that nobody knows the day and the hour except the Father in the Bible. Yes, he did. He did. Yes. I was very interested um, that you, most of your Christian life, you were right. what sort of evangelical That's all I knew. Um, yeah. Christian. And yeah. And what you hadn't realized were these, these aspects of, Christianity, which have kind of been suppressed because of the tradition of mm. sola scriptura, that 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 thanks to thanks to Martin Luther, that that uh, the Protestant branch of the church at least encourages us us to believe that 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 all this kind of accumulated ceremonial and tradition is 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 corrupting of God's mm. word word, and that we should only stick to what's in the Bible and the scriptures. But you've discovered a new dimension since. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely true. Well, in the evangelical churches, one thing that happened was, um, uh, I've written a uh, blog post about this, which is also a chapter in my book, uh, 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw on Christian Zionism. I went to uh, the evangelical churches because they were conservative. They were against abortion. They were in favor of traditional marriage. Of course, they'd be against transgenderism, which has emerged recently. Um, uh, but then I started hearing um, things uh, pro-Israel talk and I'd, I'd learned that Israel is not the rebirth of uh, biblical Israel. It's actually Tel Aviv has been voted the most pro-gay um, city on earth. And um, I realized that um, when the Apostle Paul talks about the man of law, he says the, the return of Christ won't come until the man of lawlessness revealed will set himself up in God's uh, temple, proclaim himself to be God. I realized that um, and there's this whole plan to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And, you know, Trump was pushing for a recognition of um, Jerusalem, not Tel Aviv, as Israel's capital. You see all this drive for this taking taking place. Well, this being espoused in the churches I was going to, very pro-Israel. Um, and then also a lot of support for America's Middle East wars, you know, talking about how the people... Uh, that sol our soldiers in Iraq were defending our freedoms. Well, even George Bush didn't say that. He said we we're going there to get weapons of mass destruction, which turned out we didn't find, and yet we stayed there for eight years. And um, the patriotic talk I was hearing, it was kind of like Uncle Sam was getting all mixed up with Jesus. And I, I started so frustrated. I heard so many things that I knew uh, writing on history for years that weren't true that I kind of had to get out of there. I was a day, I, I took my son, I said, son, we got to get out of here. I, I just can't take another day of this. And I started looking for, where can I worship now? Because I can't go to the, I didn't want to go to the, the Roman Catholic church, which has been in some decline, especially since what they call Vatican II. 
And I didn't want to go to the mainstream churches, which are really watered down with modernism. And then I discovered the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is new to America. Um, you know, we, we really didn't have its presence here in any significant degree until about a century ago when the, fleeing the Bolsheviks, Russians came over here, set up Orthodox churches, and Greeks fleeing what they call the Turkish Greek genocide um, came over here. But they were holding their services in Greek and Russian, so Americans still couldn't attend. It wasn't until I started to, uh, they started to have English services or partly English services, and then I used the internet, and I found that the Eastern Orthodox Church hadn't changed. They were still worshiping the way they did in the fourth century when Constantine legalized the church. That appealed to me. You know, I, I mentioned monarchies. I'm, I'm pretty pro-monarchy. I know there were some bad monarchs, but um, I'm more of a traditionalist now. And I said, you know, looking at the splintering of the uh, Western church into a thousand denominations, I said, you know, I want to do, worship the way the original Christians did. And I found that the um, the Eastern church was still doing that. They still had the same liturgy that the, the, was written by uh, St. John Chrysostom. Sometimes they use St. Basil's as well. But I said, that's what I want to do. I want to go back to the way the original church worshiped. That's the way to do it. Those guys knew what they were doing. Um, in fact, um, I was reading, when I joined Orthodox, I read the works of uh, some of the church fathers and uh, works of the church historian Eusebius. And he talked about, um, there was a Christian named uh, Hegipius, Hegisipus, excuse me. Um, he went from church to church. He traveled all around. He found that the doctrine in all the churches was uniform. The apostles had planted churches uh, with uniform doctrine. The original church was solid. It was, uh, heresies would develop, but they would, they would usually get uh, knocked out by um, ecumenical councils. There were seven ecumenical councils uh, during the first millennium, um, which convened where they would have the uh, the, the Pope of Rome would come, the, the patriarchs of Jerusalem and Constantinople and Antioch and Alexandria, as well as bishops from around the world who would come together to discuss uh, what, what was heretical and what was not. And the church stayed very stable for that first century, first millennium, excuse me. That That's uh, one of the things that drew me to um, orthodoxy. Another thing was the fact that the Orthodox Church is the most persecuted church in history. Not to deny there's been other Christian denominations persecuted, but um, according to the Synaxarian, Lenin and Trotsky murdered more Christians between 1918 and 1926 than all the martyrs, uh, Christian martyrs in all the centuries before. And in Alexander Solzhenitsyn, there were 60 million Russians killed by the, uh, the, the, the Bolsheviks. They, uh, Lenin and Trotsky destroyed 300,000 churches, killed 60,000 priests. Look at the, the Ukrainian genocide of the 19, early 1930s, the whole of the Mar that Stalin oversaw. And those were again orthodox christians so the most persecuted church it kind of shows you that the devil knew who his enemy was and i was also very impressed that the orthodox church uses the septuagint version of the old testament and when i was in evangelical churches um you'd read the new testament and jesus or the apostle would quote the old testament prophecies when you go back to the old testament it would be it'd read differently and i asked people how come the uh, when Jesus and the apostle quote the Old Testament, it reads differently. They say, well, they're quoting the Masoretic text. Well, the Masoretic text, which the King James and almost all the modern Bibles use, was put together by rabbis a thousand years after Christ. That's why it's different. But the Orthodox Church uses the Septuagint. <laughs> it's another good sign. Yeah. 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 Oh, I wondered about that. I wonder yeah. whether that was a conspiracy theory. Or, I mean, yeah. I mean a, a, a you can find the Septuagint with Amazon. It's kind of rare. Uh, usually people just use the Masoretic. Um, and the other thing about the orthodoxy was um, they, um, the West kind of went down the road of a different approach to salvation, you know, saved by works alone, 
once saved, always saved. My fate is predestined, predestination. You know, uh, as I read the uh, 4,000 pages of the Synex, sorry, anyway, let me just back up here. Uh, it was recommended by a modern saint. You read from the lives of saints every day. And I read all 4,000 pages, comes in seven hardbound volumes. And none of the saints of the church, and th 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 these 4,000 pages are drawn from manuscripts from all over the world, from Ireland, Greece, Russia, Serbia, uh, wherever the Orthodox Church was. And by the way, there was just one church again for the first thousand years. So uh, the Orthodox Church has saints from England, and, you know, uh, St. Albans and many others. Um, but um, yeah. the uh, saints never said something like Jesus paid it all. They considered that uh, you needed to devote your, your life to Christ. And um, many of them started out by giving away their possessions to the poor, the advice that Jesus gave to the rich young man. Then they would go into monasteries or the desert like St. John, uh, uh, John the Baptist or uh, into caves. And they would spend their time conquering self uh, in constant prayer, as, as uh, St. Paul advised, and conquering self, you know, the, the deadly sins of lust and, and pride and hatred, things like that. And before they would become teachers, they would conquer those things. It wasn't just a matter of going to a theology school and getting a degree. It was a matter of conquering yourself, um, denying, you know, taking up your cross and denying self. Now, I'm not an exemplary of that. And I start out my book by, by mentioning that. I, I don't get much exemplary of it. It's just that I didn't feel anybody else was going to write about this if, if I didn't. And I had the book reviewed by, by the way, with the theology instructor at an Orthodox monastery, as well as by a, a Greek Orthodox chaplain in the U.S. Army, to make sure I was theologically not misrepresenting the Orthodox Church. But this is another thing that appealed to me. It's a, not just Jesus paid it all, but you need, as St. Paul said, you need to work out your salvation. Jesus said, he overcomes, I shall give the crown of life. And he obeys my father in heaven. You know, so um, uh, they, the, the saints of the church didn't fall back on, on the idea that it was just faith alone was going to save them. Even though you can find some verses, it's from St. Paul, um, that will uh, support that. But if you put it in full context and look at the book of James, where he says, faith without works is dead. Uh, you start to get uh, the, the, the full picture. There's a synergy between your lifestyle and your, and your your faith and your works really have to be consistent with your faith. Um, so yeah, that, that all drew me into orthodoxy. Um, and finally I spread to write this book because I just said, well, it looks like we're heading to the end times and we really do need divine intervention. And the best way to invoke that is through appeal to God and by obeying him. And this one that I need to work on every day of my life. But um, I, I feel that's certainly a truth. Yeah, I, in defense, of the other um, branches of Christianity, I have to say that that, that a lot of the evangelical Christians, the, the born again Christians, uh, as they call themselves, um, quite a few mm -hmm. of the Catholics I know, they're very. It, it's not just right. about about the faith; it's also about good good works. But but I, I I do take your point about orthodoxy. There is something very attractive about it. I I, I felt that I went to the oh, Catholics a few oh. years ago. Yeah, and I, I had some very profound um, spiritual experiences there, which I think probably I didn't I did I but know it, but they were signposts on my on my road to to mm -hmm. true Christianity. Um, it was it was like you know I I, I I still parted at that time, and I still you know I, I wouldn't have described myself as a Christian, but I I met priests I I, I met the abbot mm -hmm. for example of a monastery who who very much made me feel like i was in the presence of extraordinary hol holiness 
and it wasn't it wasn't kind of sanctimonious and it wasn't that it wasn't he wasn't judging me it was just love and 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 faith and yeah it, it made an impact on me he had very piercing blue eyes well just to back up for a minute my book actually begins with a a uh a uh, passage uh, begins with a brief message to my Catholic Protestant evangelical friends. And in that uh, introduction, I am speaking to non-Orthodox peoples. And I acknowledge that I, when I was an evangelical, I had meaningful encounters with God in those churches. And um, also acknowledge that uh, I know Catholics who are more devout than I am, attend services more regularly than I do. And there are Protestant missionaries who made sacrifices going to places like Africa that I haven't made that really put me to shame. So I, I just uh, I do acknowledge that in the beginning of the book that I'm, I'm not saying that um, non-Orthodox are lazy or something like that. It's just that I felt that this was the truest form of, of Christianity that I, I had ever found uh, in my own personal journey. But in no way do I mean to demean anyone or pass judgment upon them, because after all, I, I grew up as a, uh, you know, as an atheist and then it was a new ager and then it was an evangelical. So I've just I've been on a journey. And how can I condemn anyone who's in those positions now? when I was in the myself in, in my walk. So. I, I, I think you're, I think you're very fair in the book. I, d- I don't think that people are going to be really offended. Although it's, it's quite interesting. Um, th- th- you talk as the book develops about the importance of reading the, the lives of the saints, the, the, the Synexarian. Synexarian. Um, and, and you quote, one of the the more recent saints, the the, the chap who lived on Mount Athos, what's his name? Yeah. St. Passius, who who recommended, among other things, that everyone should read the, That's the what lives of me the to saints do it, yeah. daily for in which is which is which is good. Well I, I just want to just quote what he said, what this man said, um, unless you've got it to hand before me. Um, what he said about the the mark of the beast and the vaccine. Um, I'm just looking it up now, the, the bit in your oh, book uh, where he's... Uh, oh, yes, here we are. So this guy, St. Pacios, died in 1994. And one of the things he, he, he predicted, he said, and now a vaccine has been developed to combat a new disease, which will be obligatory, and those taking it will be marked. Later on, Anyone who is not marked with the number 666 will not be able to either buy or sell, to get a loan, to get a job, and so forth. My thinking tells me that this is the system through which the Antichrist has chosen to take over the whole world. By the way, James, when I was in Mount Athos, um, which would have been in the late uh, hmm. the late 80s, uh, about 88, the monks were all talking about the end times um, that they, they knew it was coming just around, uh, around the corner, but I think he's, he's dead. Right. And I think another, I think the Patriarch Kirill in the Russian Orthodox church also said he, he recognized the, the, this so-called vaccine as being the mark of the beast. So I think the Orthodox church has been quite good on this. Uh, yes. And uh, we really see the mark coming in, you know, as soon as they started telling us in the United States that we couldn't go into a, a grocery store or a shop or a sports arena without a mask on, uh, and basically you couldn't buy or sell without a mask. 
And I said, well, this is progressive. And that's that's uh, when the Most lockdowns people. began. I, I You could really see this is all about control, not about health. And also getting you to take the vaccine and then to have yourself um, have a vaccine passport. And again, as we were discussing earlier, either a, a digital tattoo or a microchip that would uh, verify whether or not you were vaccinated and that's suitable to buy or sell. And of course, we see the whole social credit score system in China where you're constantly surveyed by the government and they'll deduct from your allowance if you do something that the government doesn't like. So a worldwide system of control definitely seems to be coming into place. And it's a no leap of logic to see that this would um, would produce the um, Mark the Beast. Um, and, and it seems like we're on the cusp of the end times, uh, doesn't it? Uh, you know, years ago, people used to, in the 80s, um, I used to hear signs here, people talk about this and that being the Antichrist. In fact, I one time I listened to the radio and somebody said that um, Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist because his name was Ronald Wilson Reagan. Each of his names had six letters, so that was 666. And I, people had all kinds of odd theories, but and I always sort of just dismissed those, of course. But um, uh, now uh, I have to say that, and uh, you really see it coming together, the globalization, the consolidation of media and government, um, and these ways of marking people, um, social credit, digitalization, the Great Reset, um, and the demonic nature of it, um, satanic nature of it, uh, who, uh, it's very hard. For, I, I can't deny that we're, we're moving into the, the uh, end times that are predicted by the revelation, not that we've seen the bulk of the book of revelation by any uh, 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 means, but uh, certainly we are, are heading, seem to be close to it. Yeah, I, I, I think we, we can probably agree that it's obvious to anyone who's done a bit of research that the new world order is essentially mm. luciferian stroke satanic in its in its origins and, and you know ultimately it's the devil who's in his many forms who's 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 running the show here or running these people but do you want to give me a sort of a, a whistle stop tour through the illuminati the freemasons um Sabbatean frankism what, what, what's its relationship to everything that's going on? Uh, now? Well, like I say, uh, I think it really began with a shot around the world. Uh, but of course, in um, France, um, uh, on the heels of the American Revolution came the French Revolution. And um, again, there's a very anti-monarchical system. And uh, France actually had 2,000 Freemasonic lodges. Um, but they began to embrace the concept of the Illuminati, which is a secret society in uh, Bavaria, run by Adam Weishaupt. But... Um, uh, according to sources like William Guy Carr was being funded by Meyer Amschel Rothschild, the man who's uh, said to have said that uh, I care not who makes the laws of a nation as long as I can issue the money. And so the um, uh, Freemasons, uh, uh, you know, the, the French Revolution is supposed to be a movement of the people, but really it's the Freemasonic lodges that plotted that revolution. They were very coordinated. Um, it's interesting when our own American Revolution occurred, um, uh, Thomas Paine and other American representatives went to France to ask the King of France to support with money the American Revolution. Of course, they just had a war with England, and so they weren't that keen on the British in France. Um, but the French king was um, reluctant, but then he saw French people, uh, fam whole families, marching the streets uh, advocating support for um, um America and uh, he thought the people of France were behind behind America, so he decided to give them, um, you know, a lot of silver 
to bring back to America. But what he didn't know was, and I, this is a book I have on my bookshelf by a Freemason, was that March of the French people was actually completely organized by the Freemasons. There were Freemasonic families that were marching, not the people of France. And interestingly enough, Thomas Paine, who went for the, to get that money, later bit the hand that fed him. He went to France, became a um, French citizen, partook in the overthrow of the king who had helped America earlier and became a member of the French assembly, which had hundreds of Freemasons in its original ranks. Um, and of course, uh, did all kinds of devilish things, murdering priests, guillotining people, uh, having a new calendar, you know, uh, cancel culture, you might say. And uh, France was sort of a centerpiece at that time. Um, the Illuminati um, uh, were outlawed by the Bavarians, but they uh, reemerged in the form of uh, uh, communism, really, which had the same principles. You know, the Illuminati had advocated the death of religion, um, the, um, the, uh, the, the destruction of nations in favor of a world government, destruction of private property, which we see, of course, with you will own nothing and be happy with the World Economic Forum. Very consistent over the ages. Communism was certainly a major step in that, towards destroying Christianity in Russia and just then spreading its doctrine and the world wars were fermented. You know, I, I, I look at the world wars, you can see a pattern. Um, World government, you know, out of World War One came the League of Nations, first attempted gold government, it failed, but out of World War Two, with uh, actually created by the uh, um, Council for Relations with the UN, United Nations, another bigger step towards world government. And if you had a World War Three, which I pray we don't, you'd have probably have a all out world government. And that's their end goal. And then if you look at communism, uh, World War One birthed the uh, Bolshevik Revolution, 1917, right, right in the midst of the war. And then World War II birthed the state of Israel. And then if you had a World War III, it would um, end up with the Antichrist ruling for the temple in Jerusalem, which is certainly what the Paul, Paul seems to be saying in 2 Thessalonians. And then as uh, far as, um, um, I think I may have skipped around a little, world government, communism and Zionism is what I meant to say. Zionism, uh, I'm sorry, I was on communism, I skipped Zionism. <laughs> communism. Uh, you had the first uh, Soviet Union coming out of World War One. Then you had uh, communism covering half the globe after World War Two. It spread into Eastern Europe, um, into uh, China, and into uh, North Viet Vietnam and North Korea. Uh, and then the world, in the end, would be the, the this Klaus Schwab vision of uh, a worldwide communist state. And then uh, Zionism. Uh, in 1917, same year as the Bolshevik Revolution, you had the Schofield Reference Bible coming out, which uh, uh, persuaded many Christians to support the state of Israel. 1948, as an outcome of World War II and sympathy for Holocaust victims, you had the state of Israel being proclaimed. And then uh, World War III, would, you would have the Antichrist ruling from a temple in, in uh, Jerusalem. That's why I meant to, to phrase it. But um, it, you can see a pattern, yeah. an agenda unfolding that is leading us into this, this dark era um, uh, that the Bible forecasts. Yeah. So who who is calling the shots? Because because I, I I hear people say some people say oh it's it's it, it's it's the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers. Some people say oh no you don't know the names of the people with the mm. real power. If you know that they, they keep themselves secret. Who where does it? Where well, does it? Well, I have to say that uh, uh, certainly Satan is at the top of the hierarchy, and under him would be the fallen angels yeah. and demons. You know the spiritual warfare that the Bible discusses. And um, at the human top, uh, it's interesting. I heard a, a, um, 
uh, a talk given by an ex high ranking Freemason who said that Satan actually lives on Jacob Rothschild's estate. And I have no idea if that could be true or not, but it didn't, did sound, didn't sound really unrealistic. Some bad thing I have to say with respect to the British people, some bad things have come out of Britain, including uh, Darwinism and Marx wrote his books there. Uh, and the Beatles came out of Britain, which, you know, uh, vastly influenced uh, American culture downward. We went from basically a pretty patriotic um, uh, family oriented society into a drug culture with um, the new music that emerged in the sixties with the Beatles being at the centerpiece of that and Lucy in the sky with diamonds stood for LSD. Um, uh, Although they denied it, didn't they? They said, Oh, it was just based on a, on a picture. That could be. One of their I, I, I don't know yeah. for sure. I think we can probably agree that, that that the, the, presumably you think that the Beatles were mm -hmm. a project of the town. Yeah, I keep hearing that. Um, yes, and uh, it's certainly a big culture shift for America. Well, the the, the media really built them up. And when Amer the Beatles came here in 1964 to appear on the Ed Sullivan Show, um, the it was like the Pope had arrived. All the networks were filming them at arriving at the airport, and there were these screaming girls. Well, it uh, turns out, uh, as I understand it, the screaming girls were all came from one. Um, school in Brooklyn, New York, they all paid $20 a piece to <laughs> scream for the Beatles. It was a setup, you know, but then yeah. we all tuned in when the Beatles had their, their uh, first appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. And it was, but they were on the cover of life magazine and Newsweek and the media, even though it was supposed to be anti-establishment, the establishment was actually pushing the Beatles. It's interesting how people didn't catch on to that. Yes. Um, but um, uh, yeah, the, the history of, uh, in terms of getting the history caught up, I, I, I do recommend uh, Ferdinand Lundeberg's book, uh, America's 60 Families, Gary Allen's 1978 book, and then they call it Conspiracy, Another Landmark. That book woke me up. And uh, But over the years, we just see this continuous consolidation of power. We see mergers. Um, we see uh, banks merging. So in America, you had the Chase Bank, which is run by the Rockefellers, and the uh, Manhattan Bank run by the Warburgs. Uh, Paul Warburg, of course, became, you know, the original head of the Federal Reserve, and he ran the meeting that started it in, in Jekyll Island in 1910. Well, the, the Chase Bank merged with Manhattan Bank, named Chase Manhattan. Then Chase Manhattan merged with J.P. Morgan, named J.P. Morgan uh, uh, Chase. And then J.P. Morgan Chase merged with Bank One. And you see corporations merging. You see the media uh, keeps uh, buying up small, smaller media companies until we just have five corporations in America running the media. It's a Disney you know, ABC News, ABC Network used to be independent. Now it's owned by Disney. National Geographic Magazine used to be independent. Now it's owned by Disney. Um, the London Times and the Wall Street Journal used to be independent journals. Now they're owned by News Corp, which also owns Fox. Um, and uh, then you've got uh, Time Warner, which uh, owns CNN um, and hundreds of other media outlets, uh, along with NBC Universal and CBS Viacom, just five corporations basically running uh, all of... Uh, um, the American media, and it's all consolidated. And they just, Tucker Carlson was kind of a, a lone voice against some of the things the establishment was doing. Now he's been fired by Fox. So it's getting more and more consolidated. But ecumenicism in the world of religion is about the same thing. It's about merging things. You have the a National Council of Churches, which is funded by the Rockefellers. And then in 1948, the Rockefellers funded the World Council of Churches, which met, I believe, it was in Amsterdam. Um, the idea being to merge... Uh, um, Companies together. In fact, Tony Blair started uh, the Tony Blair Faith Foundation, which he got to do with faith. So, uh, but I quote him in my my book, uh, 13 Pieces of the Jigsaw, 
from this website where he talks about how everyone should sign a pledge, pledging to work with uh, all people of all faiths to uh, work together to end world poverty and war. You know, and you could just see the, the globalism eminent yes. everywhere and the agenda uh, being uniform everywhere because of the, the control that they've uh, been able to achieve through the power of wealth. So they're trying to water down Christianity by, by encouraging Christians to kind of want to merge with other religions and see them as all equal, mm-hmm. a bit like, you know, you, you get Christians inviting right. Muslims into their sort of bishops getting conducting Muslim ceremonies in Yes, as a matter of fact, in the, like the church that I, I, I mentioned, the evangelical church I got upset with, one day we were told um, that we were to pretend we were Jews in a synagogue and we we're going to celebrate the Feast of Purim and they passed out noisemakers and the, the congregation was going along with us and they were blowing their noisemakers pretending to be Jews in a synagogue. This is supposed to show our solidarity mm-hmm. with the Jewish community, but no Jews from synagogues were there to witness this, so I, I don't think the Jews got impressed by it, but I, I, I just stood in silence. I looked across at a, another Christian who was also wise to it, and we just shook our heads. But that's an example of the ecumenicism that's taking place. Because when the Antichrist rules, he wants, you know, basically one government, one media, one religion. Uh, that's what world government has all been about, consolidation yeah. of power. The consolidation of mergers and, and corporations has also been about this. And everything being uh, a one world, truly a one world system. Have you? It's great having having such a sort of um, an info, well informed, well bred brain to pick here, James. So I'm I'm making the most of this occasion. But so I, you know, on the question of who runs the world. So okay, there's some of the the things I hear about are the black nobility, whoever they are. Um, there's 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 a sort of mm-hmm. the city of London. Um, there's some sort of power nexus between involving the British royal family and maybe some right. of the crowned heads of Europe. There are the, the 13 mm-hmm. satanic bloodlines. Um, there are the Jesuits. There's Ch- mm-hmm. Chabad, you, you mentioned, the kind of the, the sort of um, Israel, the sort of Zionist conspiracy. The, the, clearly Rothschild comes up a lot. I mean, the then there's the question about are they are they real Jews because there's the right. whole business about the Kazarians, aren't there, and that they they mass converted in the tenth century, ninth century. They weren't originally they they weren't people of the book. They weren't they were they they became yeah they became the they state religion yeah. and then mm-hmm. then and then changed it. So 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 how do they, how do all these different? Oh, that's a good question. Together? You know, uh, there was a movie about. Um, Freemasonry made in 1943 in Vichy, France. Uh, it was called Occult Forces. And it's about a French minister who is talked into becoming a Freemason. It's interesting. The, if you watch Occult Forces, which is available on YouTube, again, 1943 film, you actually see his induction into Freemasonry. Now, the guy who directed the movie was an ex-Freemason. He knew exactly what it was like. And um, uh, this French minister begins to develop doubt. So he goes to a senior Freemason. He's ask what Freemasonry really is. And even the ranking Freemason himself is confused because it's such a labyrinth above him that networks among the nations. Even he's not sure exactly how it all fits together. So you mentioned all of those. I think they all, those elements you mentioned do have a part in it, but I I, I don't know that even they themselves know exactly how they, they, they fit together. I, I'm sure that um, 
you know, there's a Jesuit component and, um, you know, the, the 13 bloodlines seem to be uh, valid fix. Springmeyer has talked about that. I do feel that the Rothschilds are very, very high ranking in this. They've been around, you know, uh, for so long, uh, going back to the 18th century uh, in, in terms of their power. And today are said to be the wealthiest family in the world, so rich that, uh, you know, Forbes lists the world's richest people. And they have, I think it's um, Bezos and Gates at the top, but they, they're worth like, a, you know, over a hundred billion apiece, but the Rothschilds, their wealth flows into the trillions. They're not even, they're off the charts. They're not in record. They've no. mentioned that, And they have uh, front groups and front corporations and offshore assets and things like that. So very hard to keep track of the secrecy. They're enshrouded in secrecy that uh, evil has always been enshrouded in secrecy. So it's really hard to uh, detect the exact organizational structure that they have. But certainly the Rothschilds are very close to the top. And then your low-ranking communists and, and Freemasons have always been near the bottom of that pyramid. I do think it's kind of a pyramid where um, it, it gets uh, smaller and smaller as you get towards the top. Uh, some people have said there were thir yeah, 13, a council of 13 unknown men. I've heard that said, but who they've never been named. And it's very hard to verify things like that. But the Rothschilds have certainly had their hand and enough things. Uh, the taking over Reuters, which I mentioned, the building of the Suez Canal, um, uh, uh, fomenting wars, fomenting the, the, the London stock market panic uh, in the time of Napoleon, um, and certainly uh, a major force in the 1929 U.S. stock market crash when Bernard Baruch, the Jewish banker, took Winston Churchill to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange when the panic was in full swing. And uh, they got that going in multiple ways, such as you know, one of them was raising uh, the Federal Reserve jack up interest rates very quickly, but another was short selling stocks. That's how they created the panic of 1907. And it's certainly, you know, when you short sell a stock, you sell a stock you don't own yet. Um, and when you're very rich, yeah. like the Rothschilds and JP Morgan, you can short sell a lot of stocks. So in 1929, they started short selling stocks. And then the panic set in, people saw their stock prices dropping. So real investors started selling. And then the, the market plummeted. And then Morgan and Rockefeller and their allies just went in and bought sh shares of stock that had once been worth $10 a share. They bought it at $1 a share while the small investor was wiped out. Very typical strategy. Mm. And I think we might see that repeated uh, with the markets sometime in the future. I, I think that if Klaus Schwab wants to get his great reset, he's probably going to have to collapse the markets so that people will beg for, you know, um, uh, 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 guaranteed uh, income um, credit score. Yeah. Oh, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. I think that... Um... The impression I get is that the bad guys read the Bible as closely as we Christians do. Um, you know, for example, the, one of the buildings in, in the EU is based on the Tower of, of Babel, isn't it? Um, and they seem to be very interested in rebuilding the Third Temple. Um, What's that about? Yeah, uh, as I mentioned, um, the Apostle Paul... Uh, I'll have to find that quote, um, predicted um, that the um, man of lawlessness would, um, let's see if I can find that. Now, Christ told us, um, 
don't believe you don't believe it if somebody says uh there he is out in the desert or here he is in the inner rooms that's matthew 24 26 to 27 so it's not gonna be christ but he's gonna pretend to be christ um yeah okay here's what apostle paul wrote in 2 thessalonians chapter 2 talking about the end times he said don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed the man doomed to destruction will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God and his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God that's what the third temple is all about and that's why uh, I talked to a missionary to Israel and he said yes they've got the third temple the elements are already ready they've got the, even got the musical instruments ready for it uh, they plan to have some kind of the station on the uh, dome of what's called the dome of the rock where um, um, the uh, Muslims have one of their uh, most uh, um uh sacred uh yeah and uh, they plan to uh build the temple for the antichrist there uh again so that with that scripture being would, would be fulfilled um so you're right uh the bad guys know the scripture of course when when satan took uh jesus into the desert to tempt him he quoted scripture at him uh and tried to use it deceptively which he, he didn't get away with yeah Yes, I know. It's great. It's one of the things I love about about reading reading the Bible and re reading. I've, I've I've got a particular fixation mm. with the Psalms, which I love, and I like the fact that um, that that Satan quotes Psalm ninety one um, when he's trying to get Jesus to jump off off the uh, off the temple. He's saying saying, well, you know, the angels are going to pick you up, for he shall give his angels charge over thee. Um, the, the, um, and there are also um, Jesus was was clearly very well versed in the scriptures because he he quotes Psalm twenty two when he's on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Um, it's all there. It's 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 really interesting stuff. I I I, I find. Um, uh, well, I was going to ask you about the uh, um, about orthodox's take oh yes that's right yeah yeah so you you address one of the one of the interesting questions you address in the book is how can we how can we believe these these miracles are are, are, are real and i i just just want a, a slight digression here have you ever come across a a, a writer called no. bernard cornwell Bernard Cornwell has got he 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 writes historical fiction set in various wars. He started with the Napoleonic Wars and then he moved on to older wars. And I, I think he's probably his masterpiece is this this cycle set in the era of of of, of King Alfred, where you've got got Vikings battling Saxons or Anglo-Saxons for for, for for who's going to take control of of Britain. And there's a very strong anti-clerical strain in, in Cornwell's, Cornwell's writing. He keeps, he never resists an opportunity to mock things like when they have fragments of the true cross or, or you know, and he often satirizes it by sort of having ridiculous things like sort of um, maybe the net that, the, that the, the disciples use when they, when they, you know when, when they cast their nets into the sea of galilee and caught all those fish or whatever he's he's he's, he's thinking of ever more ridiculous ways in which to mock 
the the early church's love of relics from the from the era of of, of Christ. But you you clearly believe that these relics were real, and that the miracles conducted in the years after Christ were yes, real. Yes, uh, Jesus said uh, the works that uh, I do, those who believe in me will do also. Uh, and greater works than these shall he do. And uh, that was an interesting passage. And when I was in evangelical churches, uh, the teaching was that, uh, well, Jesus didn't really mean we're going to do miracles like uh, raise the dead. Uh, what Jesus meant was we're going to evangelize more people than, than he did. And that would be the, our miracle. And I was taught in the evangelical churches there were no miracles after the, the uh, book of Acts, that they stopped after that. Um, but... When I read the Synaxarian, which I have to say is drawn from hundreds of manuscripts in many different languages, Syria, uh, Russia, Bulgaria, Romania, France, England, Ireland, Greece, um, throughout the centuries, we see that the miracles Jesus did, the saints did also, raising the dead, healing lepers, healing the blind, walking on water. As I read this, I started to get amazed. And so I actually started to catalog these miracles. So I made... Um, you know, a list of the saints who walked on water. And then, by the way, they weren't what kind of water to show off. If they did that, they'd plunge right into the waves. These were people who had dedicated themselves to Christ, had borne their cross, went through sufferings, uh, prayed constantly, um, except for, you know, those occasions when they needed to help other people or were reading from the scriptures. Um, yeah, the miracles um, are cataloged from so many different places, you know, um, how could it be a conspiracy? People in Syria were writing in Arabic and in Ireland, they were writing in Gaelic. And how could, there was no email back then. They couldn't be conspiring with each other, you know, they're uh, um, uh, thousands of miles apart. Um, but all these miracles were documented and it's very consistent that the only people who did miracles, no casual believer did a miracle. It's only those who totally dedicated themselves to Christ and denied self and overcome their own passions that did miracles. That was it. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm convinced by the consistency because, you know, if you're in a courtroom, consistency is a mark of a truthful witness. If a guy keeps contradicting himself, then you figure, well, this guy's uh, got something he's concealing, mm. but, um, yeah, the consistency, um, and, um, I've actually met people who have, uh, witnessed, um, such miracles. I met the abbot of a monastery. Um, one of the, one of the, uh, commonest miracles of these saints was that, uh, they're, um, remains would remain incorrupt. They wouldn't decay. Uh, I've got a, you know, a picture of a fourth century saint on the island. He's on the island, is it remains on the island of Corfu. They haven't de de decayed since the fourth century. And this is true for um, uh, many of the saints. Uh, St. John of Shanghai, who died, I believe, in the 1960s, his remains are still uh, incorrupt and visible. And as a saint, uh, I met the um, uh, abbot of a monastery who has visited him, visited him during... Um, uh, an extreme illness. Um, so the saints are very real. The, the miracles are very real, and, and I believe, but I devote two chapters to whether or not these uh, miracles are real or not, because I, that many people will scoff. Um, you know, I didn't believe, we say, a lot of people will say, I never saw a miracle. Um, yeah, in the United States, we really, we really did. Although I've occasionally heard um, uh, evangelicals give testimony to a miraculous healing in response to prayer. And I, I don't put any doubt on their words. And of course, Catholics will speak of appearances of the Virgin Mary as being miraculous. And I'm not about to challenge those people on, on uh, what witnesses have, 
as stated, but um, we see in the Orthodox Church um, a great many miracles, hundreds of them, and doing exactly what Jesus said. Even the moving of a mountain uh, has been documented three times, um, which Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can do that. Well, <laughs> that doesn't say a lot for our faith. We can't do that. But the people who did move mountains were people of remarkable faith, of absolutely remarkable faith. They were they yes. were not, uh, I, they were not uh, in two occasions done when they're challenged and threatened with death by Muslims if they didn't do it. And so they spent days in prayer and fasting before those mountains were moved. It was no snap your fingers and the mountain moves. It was. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't clear. So I, I read one of your stories about that from the Synaxarian about how the Muslims said, right, we're going to kill you all. And horribly, really horribly, if 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 your if your God fails you, so we're going to give you the chance, and they pray for eight days. How much did the mountain? Uh, it doesn't say, it, but it know? moved enough to frighten the Muslims that many of them became Christians, including the Caliph, who had threatened the um, the Christians. He secretly became a secret Christian. Yeah. By the way, I've since I've become interested in Christianity because um, it is a is is a fantastic rabbit hole um i've i've met or spoken to at least two people in the last two years who've actually seen angels um i, I there's a girl i go riding with who was cured of a, a a very nasty chronic illness in her adolescence by father pio his glove was passed around mm -hmm. in Catholic circles, and she and and the the glove was used to to heal her. Um, I'm trying to think of s some other. Oh yes, that's right. And in in my friends, my sort of born again friends who 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 do things like cast out demons very successfully, have also successfully prayed. I mean, obviously, you know, non believers are just going to think this is nonsense, but successfully prayed out the poison from somebody who took the vaccines. So I, I'm hearing a lot of this stuff. I think it's only in kind of anti-religious circles, anti-Christian circles that, that, that there is strong skepticism. But I think those of us who are in the loop know that this stuff is real and happening and is part of God's signs that, that he's got our back and that difficult times are approaching. Uh, yes. Uh... You know, uh, there is a passage in the Bible where uh, it says that Jesus did not do miracles there because of their unbelief. So uh, if you're in an unbelieving society, which America's certainly increasingly become, you're not going to see a lot of miracles. It really takes uh, utter devotion to Christ uh, for someone uh, to see these miracles happening, whether that is in or out of the Orthodox Church. I don't think God cares as long as... Um, the person is acting out of a sincere faith and um, and uh, very rigorous uh, obedience that we would see such a thing happening. Uh, it's interesting that people will say, well, miracles can't happen because they violate the laws of the universe. Well, God's outside the universe. He created it. So he's not subject to its laws. So he um, can create a miracle, whether as Jesus or someone who is drawn so close to God through obedience that they share in God's spirit. You know, Saint Seraphim of uh, Serov was the probably the most revered saint in the Russian Orthodox Church, and he said the whole um, purpose of the Christian is to acquire the Spirit of God uh, through these through this 
type of obedience, uh, uh, giving to the poor and, and, and uh, being obedient to Christ and carrying one's cross. Um, so when you draw close to God, the closer you are to God, the more you become um, capable of doing things like God. But again, this is never for show or to impress people or out of vanity or you just, you're not going to do a miracle. <laughs> and Jesus himself goes, condemn those who uh, would pray in public um, for show, um, uh, for vanity. Uh, humility is a cornerstone of, really of the Christian and things done for vanity uh, are not going to produce miracles. Yes. James, I've got to get, get you back onto another podcast because we've got, we've got so much more to talk about. But before we, before we go, I've got to ask you about dragons and dinosaurs because I know you've mentioned them in, in, in your previous research. And can I just tell you, I am known, notorious indeed, I don't believe in dinosaurs. I do believe in dragons. No, not crazy? at all. No, uh, almost 20 years before I, I wrote... Um, uh, the Missing Saints book or became Orthodox. I wrote a book called uh, uh, Tornado in a Junkyard, which is, um, I was really interested in whether Darwin's theory was true or not, because I'd been taught it as a scientific fact. And when I started uh, examining books on what we call creation science, there were PhD scientists, they showed that the Darwin's theory of evolution was just a house of cards. Well, um, uh, one of the things that I found and this is, again, not from books about saints. The, the saints, if you read the Synaxarian, uh, destroyed a number of dragons. So people say, well, that's obviously guff because there's no such thing as dragons. But look at the Chinese zodiac. It's got 12 animals, like the, you know, the tiger and uh, uh, the, the goat, the monkey, right? Uh, where the year of the monkey, right? So, um, but it also has a dragon. And why would the Chinese select 11 real animals and one mythical animal to be in their zodiac? Um, the fact of the matter is that uh, dinosaurs or dragons are extinct. You know, the word dinosaur wasn't coined until the 19th century. So what people called them before that was simply dragons. And um, let's see, um, I've got a quote. It actually appears originally in Tornado in the Junkyard, but I uh, updated it for my book. Uh, this is recorded in 1405 in Suffolk, England. Um, Close to the town of Bures near Sudbury, there's lately appeared to the great herd of the countryside a dragon, vast in body with a crested head, teeth like a saw, and a tail extending to an enormous length. Having slaughtered the shepherd of a flock, it devoured many sheep. In order to destroy him, all the country people around were summoned. But when the dragon saw there was again to be assailed with arrows, he fled into a marsh or a mere, and there hid himself among the long reeds. It was no more seen. Now, there are many accounts like that, including America, uh, an account in Arizona of an encounter with a pterodactyl. Um, uh, but the accounts of dragons appeared in Africa, uh, Persia, China, Japan, England, Ireland, um, again, America, uh, Germany, uh, Italy, uh, around the world. How could all these be imaginings? How could all of our ancestors just imagine these dragons appearing? It's, it certainly appears that, and, and again, this is consistent with the Synaxarian uh, tells us about um, dragons being slain by St. George, for example. Um, uh, and other saints, uh, that dragons were real and that what we were calling dinosaurs today and say they existed 60 million years ago. Well, this is in the Smithsonian Magazine. Uh, they found red blood cells um, in DNA in dinosaurs. Now, if they're 60 million years old, how could those red blood cells have survived all that time? You know, they're actually recent. Uh, they're actually recent. But Darwin's theory required billions of years you know, for it to work. 
because you couldn't get evolution overnight if it's all happening by chance. So, yeah, yeah. So Darwin, Darwin uh, allied himself with a um, uh, geologist named Charles Lyell, who um, proposed that the Earth's sedimentary rock, you know, um, most of the Earth's rock is sedimentary, that is water deposited, uh, was not from the great flood described in the Bible, but was instead slowly laid down by oceans. Um, and uh, there's an um, uh, let's see, there's an interesting quote from Darwin um, uh, that includes Lyell within it. Let me just get that up. Um, so Darwin said in 1873, Lyell, the geologist, is most firmly convinced he's shaken the faith in the deluge, meaning the biblical flood, far more officially by never having said a word against the Bible than he acted otherwise. I've read lately Morley's Life of Voltaire, and he insists strongly that direct attacks on Christianity, even when written with a wonderful force and vigor of Voltaire, produced little permanent effect. Real good seems only to follow the slow and silent side attacks. So here's Darwin characterizing his own theory as a side attack on the Bible. He knew he couldn't attack the Bible directly, say Christianity is, is uh, baloney. Instead, he introduces his science because people respected science and say, this is how life evolved. You know, there was some phosphorus and these other little cells in the ocean and or, or a pond is what he actually used in, uh, in the original species. But um, the, the things just randomly came together and they began evolving. But you, when you look at it, you see how ridiculous that is because... Um, a, uh, a cell is actually very complex. He never heard of DNA and the genetic code. You know, um, also it's not supported by any observations. Has anyone observed dead chemicals form a living cell? No. So zero observations to support it. And then um, uh, uh, cells have uh, thousands of different proteins, even a bacterial cell, thousands of different proteins. Each protein is found in a smaller building block called amino acids, hundreds of them, which have to be in the exact right order. Now, Sir Francis Crick, who uh, co-won the Nobel Prize for discovering DNA, estimated the odds of getting just one protein by chance. He said it's one in 10 to the power of 260. Now, professional mathematicians will say, if anything's uh, worse than the odds of one in 10 to the power of 50, it's impossible. So it would be impossible to get one protein by chance, let alone the thousands a, a cell would need. And kind of the clincher for me is, if you believe in Darwin's theory that a cell was formed by chance, how about cellular reproduction? That's a very complex process. Before this first cell of Darwin's, which came about by chance, he says, came before it died, it would have had to completely evolve and perfect the process of cellular reproduction, or that never would have been a second cell. Obviously, the whole thing is it's absurd. It's not supported by observations. It's mathematically impossible, and it's totally illogical. And it's taught as fact and turns people into atheists in public schools. By the way, I, I kind of realized that um, Darwin's theory, which you know was being espoused in the mid to late 19th century, was what set up the attack on Christianity called modernism, which here in America emerged in the 1890s with Charles Briggs, with Rockefeller backing, he introduced modernism, which said that there were no miracles. The Bible was not written by the people who was written by. There was never a resurrection. Jesus did not die in atonement for sin. They even cast doubt on whether Jesus existed. Darwin's theory was a setup for all that, all the attacks on Christianity that have subsequently occurred. So it's, it's sequential. Yes. No. I was I was familiar with some of the, the points you you um, very articulately um, uh, raised there, um, but I hadn't I hadn't previously grasped why you know, why would somebody in, in if if dinosaurs weren't real and it seems to me they weren't given that there's so little there's no fossil record which shows 
Well, well, we have we have have dinosaurs that have been reconstructed. Their bones have been reconstructed in different museums. That's what I mean. Reconstructed. They're not. They're not. As I understand it, that these things are just kind of they take a a tooth and maybe you know a vertebra and a and a and a claw. And then they make out of this this huge plaster cast. That, that has definitely piece, happened. That is definitely, fantasy, uh, and I go into that in tornado in a junkyard. Uh, the you know, um, uh, you know, uh, some of the various ape men that they proposed were based on little more than uh, a set of teeth, and then they reconstructed the whole thing um, out of that. But there are some di- there are dinosaur bones that they've found. Um, so I do believe that, th- that th- those those would represent. Well, what, I, I think uh, a pretty good amount. Uh, actually, there's a um, I'm forgetting his name because I haven't thought about him for a while, but there's a, a, a researcher down in Texas who's a creationist, a Christian, but he has a, a, a fossil museum and he's, he's found dinosaur bones, you know, uh, you know, extensively buried. Um, uh, so. Well, I'm willing to be corrected on this if, if you, because, you know, I mean, it's a controversial mm-hmm. position for some people that, they, you know, we, how can we trust James on the new world order when he doesn't believe in dinosaurs is, is the kind of thinking that runs. Well, um, if I can see evidence, because that's all I care about, of, of actual significant chunks of dinosaur, then I might revise yeah, my I, opinion. I, that I, it's all I think the evidence hope. is out but there. I, I think but, if we, we take a good look, uh, we'll, we'll find that, yeah, the dinosaur bones uh, have been found in, in places where a dinosaur was killed, you know, buried under the flood. And they, they, they've reconstructed it uh, from the bones yeah, found yeah. in that one place as opposed to being entirely uh, done from imagination. Although again, there have been like Java Man was basically just a, I think a tooth and a jawbone, and then they reconstructed a whole ape man out of them. But um, it... except you, you seem to be suggesting, correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem to be suggesting that that one of the reasons that we're encouraged to think of to believe in dinosaurs is to make the Earth seem older than it well, actually is in order to validate um, evolutionary theory, which requires on sort of micro changes over millions of mm-hmm. billions of years. Um, so where are you on well, the earth? Say? I, I think it's, I think it's a young earth. Um, you know, I do have a chapter in Tornado and Junkyard on radiometric dating and the fallacies that go into that. Uh, carbon dating, I think it can't date anything older than 50,000 years. And the other methods they use depend on uh, basic assumptions they put in, in, in into those those uh, models. So uh, I, I do believe, um, and I, I talk about various uh, scientific evidences for a young earth um, uh, in, in that chapter in Tornado in a Junkyard. So yeah, I believe the earth is young. I believe it happened uh, as it says in the Bible. And um, you had the biblical flood, um, you know, a couple of thousand years before Christ and uh, the, probably a couple of thousand years of, of yeah. living bef- before then when the earth was actually much more lush in its vegetation, even in Antarctica, they found, uh, you know, uh, fossil fuel, uh, fossils of, of palm trees, you know, the earth really changed after the, the flood covered the earth. Um, but I think it's only a few thousand years old and that uh, we're bought, uh, uh, you know, again, the, the ancient age of the earth was basically a requirement for Darwin's theory to, to succeed. So they had to come up with this old earth model. Um, I know that sounds crazy to people have been taught that we're 5 billion years old on earth. Um, the, the planet itself, um, but that's something that needs um, uh, you have to kind of vet it and um, go over the various radiometric uh, methods that are being used and, and what's what's wrong with them. 
I totally agree. We have to question everything, and and one of my one of my sores is that the more we're t- we're told some- about something being true, that the more likely it is that it's a fabrication. So, for example, you mentioned Lexington, which is of course a cornerstone of the mytho- mythos of the of of the revolutionary wars, and it 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 doesn't surprise me to learn that actually it was a Freemasonic. Uh, psyop, false flag, um, and that Paul Revere was not the hero that we're told, and etc. etc. It, it makes sense because that's one of the stories we're told most about America, the birth of America. So it would make sense that it's a lie. Yeah, actually, if you um, look at uh, Paul Revere's original deposition uh, from 1775, um, he says nothing about warning the people that the redcoats are coming. Uh, he only talks about uh, flying his. He was on a fast horse. He was a good horseman. Uh, his horse is called Brown Bess. He, he flew out of uh, Boston as soon as he knew the British troops were coming out. They'd been waiting for an opportunity to set this thing up. So he went, according to his deposition, he went straight to the house of uh, where John Hancock and St. Adams were staying. It still stands today. I used to walk by it on my way home from school every day. It's called the Hancock Clark House. Clark was a reverend who lived in the house with John Hancock. Um, uh, but Paul Revere said nothing about saying the Redcoats are coming in his deposition of 1775 later on and he became the grand master of massachusetts freemasons and much later he was interviewed that's when he started talking about saying the redcoats are coming now I, i'm not saying he fabricated that maybe he just left that out of his original deposition but his main objective seems to have been to get um to adams and Han- uh, uh hancock so they could orchestrate the events the following morning and paul revere himself showed up on lexington green one half hour before the british arrived um mixed mixed in with the militia and i think he was there to choreograph the uh freemasons and where they're gonna fire from and this this sort of thing i think about paul revere went there one half hour before the british arrival um he said he was there to get a trunk but if he wanted the, uh, so the british wouldn't capture it but if he wanted the trunk he should have just taken it right away instead he hung around until the british arrived so yeah a lot of things about paul revere. it was interesting um you know there was a movie about the revolutionary war um uh uh, who's the actor? He's a British uh, or Australian actor. Mel Gibson made a, a movie uh, where he played this. Uh, he was a, that movie, The Patriot, which originally he was going to play Paul Revere. But when he investigated Paul Revere, it turns out that after his famous ride, nobody knows where he went that day. He certainly wasn't amongst the uh, local militias fighting the uh, British. Um, he just disappeared and he didn't have a distinguished career after that. He fought in one battle in Maine. Um, in which he was actually tried for cowardice and insubordination, although they cleared him of the charges, but he didn't have an exciting military career after that. So Mel Gibson decided he'd play uh, what they call a guy they call the Swamp Fox down in South Carolina instead, um, because there wasn't that much to tell about Paul Revere after his ride was over. Now I'm not trying to, I, I know that offends a lot of American patriots who have um, really looked on him. And I, I do want to say again, that I respect our American patriots who, I know they revere our founding fathers and I found some flaws in them, but um, our American patriots are actually uh, the ones we have right now are conservative. They're against abortion. They're Christian, most of them. And uh, they're, they're the best defenders of liberty we have right now in America. So uh, I want to always make sure I keep my peace with these people. They are good people. Um, it, James Perloff, it's been great chatting to you and i hope you'll mm-hmm. come back on the dunning pod again um please please tell us where we can read oh. your your books and oh by the way i really recommend your essay on 
the history of It's a Wonderful Life. Mm -hmm. We won't talk about it yes. now, but it's on your uh, website. Yeah, my website is jamesperloff.net, uh, P-E-R-L-O-F-F. -F. And um, you get all my books on Amazon, except the one on COVID. They censored that after two months, um, but you can still buy it. Um, uh, actually, if you subscribe to my website, you can get a free PDF or other uh, versions, the EPUB version of, of that book. But that, bear in mind, it was written in 2020 before the vaccine rollout. Um, I'm also on Twitter, it's James Perloff, um, but Twitter incredibly shadow bans me. I mean, if I tweet something, I've, I'm supposed to have 24,000 followers. I, I might get three or four retweets and uh, other people tweet the exact same thing and they'll get hundreds. You know, I'm, I'm definitely shadow banned. So I've gone over to Gab. I'm on Twitter and on Gab. I, I get a lot more repost from Gab with 700 followers I do on Twitter with 24,000. I, I I've tried to contact Elon Musk because he's supposed to be standing for free speech on Twitter, but no success so far. But uh, yeah, my books are on Amazon and my website, jamesperloff.net. Um, and uh, so that's uh, basically my uh, story. You can always contact me through my, through my website. Okay. Um, and if you like my stuff, and you want to support me, I mean, obviously you can, if you want to be um, a cheapskate, just carry on consuming it for free. But I really appreciate those of you who do support me. Um, you can buy <laughs> me a coffee or, or three or five. Somebody bought me lots more than that the other day. It was great. Um, I, I was on a sort of caffeine gag for, for, for weeks thereafter. Um, you can you can get early access uh, to my stuff if you, if you go to Locals or to um, uh, Patreon, um, subscribe star Substack is 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 good um yeah do support me if you can i really appreciate it it helps for the cause and you don't want the money going into the mainstream media who are evil and want to destroy you so put some my way um james thanks again james perloff it's been privileged well i'm so glad we're having you on the show i'm so glad we can connect good across luck uh, the atlantic ocean this way um you know uh there was a time back when i wrote my first book uh, we didn't have any internet at all. And if you wanted to look something up, you had to go to the library, uh, look in a card catalog. You know? <laughs> um, so uh, we've come a long way. And um, although the internet's been used against us in a lot of ways, um, it's also been a good tool for us um, to uh, interact and to, to, to find out information. So I'm grateful that we... Uh, you it's great. Okay, thanks a lot, James. And, um, and goodbye.